And then I decided I needed to marry the two. So I needed to marry my science background and my love for the patient and the systems uh, perspective. And that's how I stumbled into medical education. Nobody in this field took a linear path. (laughs) Welcome to Five to Life, a PhD and beyond. On today's episode, we'll be continuing our series on what can I do with my graduate school degree? I'm Aaron, and on today's episode, I'm joined by Brittany and Tiffany. And our special guest is Sarah Miller, Director of the Quality Improvement Institute. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. The topic of today's podcast is scientific writing and communication and continued education. So what do you do in that realm? Sure. So I live in the continuing medical education space. Uh, My organization and many like mine provide continuing education for nurses, pharmacists, and physicians. And so the gap that we're trying to fill is the gap in which it takes about 19 years from the time clinical practice guidelines hit the press to when they become standard of care. And our goal is to diminish that. Yeah, that's a very long time. It is a long time. And if you finished medical school in 1980, it would take about seven years for the medical knowledge to double. In 2030, sorry, in 2020, that number goes to 72 days. So by 2020, which is not that far away, (laughs) medical knowledge will double in 72 days. So if you are a practicing clinician, that's an enormous ask. Yeah, um, I guess being in the biomedical sciences, uh, we all have exposure to clinicians. Um, So I've encounter continuing uh, continuing education um, amongst colleagues Um, and it always seemed to be sort of a burden or something I I was like well I'm glad I don't have to have this continued uh, monitoring Mm -hmm. of my involvement in in the field but that's that's a very nice way to put that in perspective yeah so to put more perspective on it about every year about 31 new drugs hit the market in 2017 that number was 46 So if you are a practicing clinician, 46 new drugs came to market, which may or may not be things that you want to use on your patients immediately. Mm. But how do you find out what to do with that information? How do you know where a drug works, where it doesn't work, what it's approved for, what the trial data say, whether you want to put it into practice? And so if you don't have continuing medical education, you continue to practice in the same way you always have, and it takes 19 years for new standard of cares to come to market. Mm. So what would, be the, um, what would be the steps you guys take whenever a new drug hits the market to building the portfolio or including that in your course? So not surprisingly, based on what I just said, a lot of continuing medical education is funded through pharmaceutical companies. So obviously pharmaceutical companies have a need to make sure that their, their products end up in the market appropriately, and clinicians have a need to know that as well. Pharmaceutical companies can do that one of two ways. They can do it through promotional education, and that's education that they can influence. And that ed- there's a lot of that education that does still happen. And they can speak specifically about a specific drug and what that drug does and what patient it can be used in and what the trial data say. But they can only speak about the label, what the FDA has said mm-hmm. that that drug is indicated for. The other way to provide education to clinicians is through continuing medical education. That education is hands-off from a pharmaceutical company. 
So we write a grant to a pharmaceutical agency. We say we'd like to educate on disease X to this kind of clinician. And they say, okay, here's the money to make those education programs happen. And that's the end of their involvement. In my world, I can then award clinicians continuing education credits for that. The promotional education on the other side of this, clinicians cannot get credit for. Because of the pharmaceutical influence, that doesn't count towards their requirements. So to your earlier point, there are some burdens around number of CME credits, and they're not universal. So not all states have a CME requirement for their physicians, and physicians have different requirements from state to state. From state to state, nurses have a different requirement, pharmacists have a different requirement, and PS and PAs, advanced practice uh, practice providers, have another requirement. And so there is some kind of rules about how much of this they have to take. Um, But at the end of the day, the education that they take that's CME certified is a little bit more comprehensive in terms of knowing what these new agents are, how they apply in practice. So I can't educate on a single drug. I have to talk about the whole class. I actually have to talk about all of the classes that are available most of the time. Sometimes we can do single class, but most of the time I have to talk about everything that's open, everything that's available. So type 2 diabetes, there's 12 classes of medications. Most of our programs will talk about all 12 classes wow. and all of the drugs inside of those classes. So it's a, it's a different, I'll say more comprehensive set of education than the promotional end of that. I didn't even think of this as a, a career option. That blows my mind that most this is <laughs> happening. <laughs> so most people in continuing medical education stumbled there. I did. <laughs> there are not PhD programs designed for continuing medical education. What makes it really possible for people who have PhDs and master's degrees is your basic science understanding. Mm. So the fact that you understand pharmacology and that you can understand why a particular clinical pathway is important and its interaction with other pathways and why targeting that pathway, how targeting that pathway impacts the disease process. Those are the skills that you've developed in your or developing in your programs, and that's what makes you successful in my field. Can you tell us a little bit about how you stumbled upon this? (laughs) (laughs) I can. So I was at the bench after graduate school because that's what I thought you did after graduate school. Um, and I was at the bench for four years and decided this is not exactly what I want to do every day. Um, the bench, I say, <laughs> after graduate school is very different than the bench in graduate school. Mm. Um, and I needed to have more human interaction <laughs> um, and less plastics in my life. <laughs> As do we all. <laughs> and um, so I searched for something that would give me more um direct clinical outcomes. Mm. Um, So I moved initially from the bench to a patient advocacy group where I ran clinics um, both for adults and for kids. I did a lot of patient advocacy work. So I went into school systems with kids who have muscular dystrophy and helped them become their own medical advocates and explain their condition to their um, colleague or to their, their fellow students and to teachers and help them understand what was happening Um, and I ran a summer camp program for those kids. Um, So I really got a good look at patient care um, in that kind of a setting. And then I decided I needed to marry the two. So I needed to marry my science background and my love for the patient 
and the systems uh, perspective, and that's how I stumbled into medical education. Nobody in this field <clears throat> took a linear path. <laughs> <laughs> what, what skills are required for a path like this? So you have to have the basic building blocks of scientific knowledge, as I mentioned a minute ago. You have to be able to read clinical trials and know what they mean and know how to distill that information into an educational program. You have to be able to interface with subject matter experts. So if you work at my organization, you may pick up the phone any day of the week and call Stanford and call the top clinician in the field. I'm, I interface with the people who are writing guidelines. I interface with the people who are running trials in the biggest spaces. They don't need to talk to me. And I need to be able to earn their respect. And they need to view me as somebody who they can trust and who can develop education that they would be willing to put their name on. That's kind of a big deal. Mm. Um, so you really have to have the chops to be able to show your scientific knowledge. Um, you also need to be able to write. You need to be able to write in prose. You need to be able to write slide decks. Um, that's not a skill that a lot of people come out of medical school with. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure what that is. Can you explain that a little bit? A, a PowerPoint deck. Oh, oh, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. A slide deck. Slide, yes. Gotcha, gotcha. Yes. Um, so you need to be able to take those data that I talked about in clinical trials and put them on PowerPoint slides that are going to be effective and that will stand alone if they need to. Though a lot of times a clinician will present an educational piece, the output of that is, a, is the slide deck and that slide deck might get disseminated to other clinicians who weren't at the program and you want them to be able to look at that and make sense of it without hearing the words behind it. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a, that's a really important skill. So would you say that less um, formal write-up or, you know, not, a, not in a manuscript form, would that be a skill that you weren't necessarily prepared for through the graduate program? Are there others like that that you kind of had to pick up through the trade? Well, I have a disadvantage because PowerPoint was a little younger when I was in graduate school. So <laughs> uh, you guys probably are better prepared for that than mm. I was mm. uh, just by nature of the world in which you're growing up. Um, I do do some manuscript writing, so we do some programs that look at patient data, and those programs are programs that we do write um, and put in peer-reviewed manuscripts, um, hopefully, when they get accepted. Uh, so that is still a skill. That's a skill that I developed in graduate school, and that's still a skill that is applicable to my world. I don't write 30 of those in a year, um, thankfully, <laughs> but it is something that's really important. Mm -hmm. What does your typical week look like? So my typical week is a bit all over the map, but for I'll answer the question for people who maybe are newer to my industry because that's probably who your listener is. Um, so if you were new to, to continuing medical education, you would probably come into this at the level at which you were developing content for programs that were already awarded. And so most of our programs are grant-funded. Um, some of them are self-funded either by our organization because we think it's an important need and there aren't monies out there for it, um, or from societies or from health systems who want to do the education um, but don't have the bandwidth to do it themselves, and so they'll hire us to do it. In any case, you get a pretty nice outline of what a program should look like, what the general overview should be. 
and what the general objectives are. But then as a content manager, your responsibility is to work with those top dog clinicians and fill in the gaps. So interface with the people who are doing the trials and writing the clinical guidelines, figure out what the education needs to include, develop the education. So sometimes it's a slide deck, sometimes it's a prose-based piece. We have a program um, that is very text-based. It looks a lot like a review program a review paper in disguise just you can get CME credit for it uh, so you may be responsible for, for developing that um, and so interfacing with the faculty and determining what needs to be in the education what are the key points what are the important details how do you make it balanced so again because it's CME I have to talk about all the drugs I'm not talking about a drug I'm talking about the whole class I have to talk about the efficacy data and the safety data and the limitations for the whole class and how in how that class interfaces with other classes and other options so putting all of those things together um, and into the package and then getting your faculty to review it and there's a bit of a back-and-forth review process before um, ultimately once it's a, a the faculty have determined that we've hit all the major points and then um, our team would shuttle it through a various number of reviews. So CME is a somewhat regulated industry. It's not terribly regulated, but there are some requirements that, that have to be followed. And so shuttling it through those reviews. With these regulations, do you have some ability to be creative in the way you educate? Yeah, absolutely. They're not terribly restrictive. They They are simply... You have to be fair and balanced. You have to talk about all the drugs. You can't. You, we don't use trade names. We use generic names. They're not terribly difficult, but you have to make all programs have to go through that review process. And do these also include drugs that should no longer be used and uh, like old techniques and whatnot? Yeah, absolutely. Our education would include that. Manufacturers who make those drugs don't fund that education, but yeah, <laughs> um, yeah this, certainly that gets included in there as well. So. CME companies, they're all funded by grants, you said, or at least the continuing education is? A lot of CME is funded by continuing education grants from pharmaceutical companies. Um, some foundations do fund some education, so we have some foundation dollars. But by and large, that's how the most CME is produced. Um, so is the government it, does not. <laughs> is it considered a nonprofit? Or? We are not a nonprofit. Okay. There are some CME companies that are nonprofit. You know, societies do some education, so they're often nonprofits, though they tend to have smaller teams, and so often they will outsource that work to groups like mine. But they, they do do some of their own continuing education, and, and often those are also underwritten by pharmaceutical grants. Not always. Sometimes societies will fund their own, but often... The, the vast majority of education is coming from pharmaceutical agencies. That, that, that's shocking. Like, there's nothing to do with state education or anything like that to make sure we have good health care? You know, <laughs> I'm just, I'm like, I'm So shocked. states don't do a lot of that kind of education. If they, they will occasionally do some education, that is state-required. So some states have specific uh, therapeutic space requirements. So, for example, if you're a physician in New York, you have to take a certain number of hours in HIV. Um, so the state might put that together, but it's very, very, very rare. Wow. Academic medical centers will self-produce some education. Sometimes they will organ they will sub that out to organizations like mine as well, though, because they tend not to have big uh, offices that can develop that education. So 
some of it they'll do internally and largely that's clinician driven so you may have a special interest in diabetes you may go to the CME office at your academic medical center and say I want to do a program on diabetes and that usually ends up in a grand rounds kind of a format but that's usually where that ends and it's it tends to be I'll call it faculty special interest driven it's less about 33 new drugs on the market that clinicians need to know what to do with Um, you know the other place to get continuing education is of course your major meeting so if you're a hepatologist your major meeting is the liver meeting AASLD American Association for the study of liver disease certainly you can go there and get education that's where you hear the latest science I don't have to tell you guys that you know that but the budgets for clinicians to get out of their offices and travel to those meetings are diminishing quickly Mm. Um, so clinicians are finding it harder and harder to get to those kinds of meetings do you do any kind of um, consulting or provide support to say those faculty who have those special interests and are putting together a little program for that can they come to you sometimes um, but usually because their organization has come to us and said will you do the back office management for Mm. us Um, so often academic medical centers have two or three people in their continuing education office and so sometimes they'll contract with us and say we want to run an internal CME program but we don't have the bandwidth to help faculty get that off the ground when you run these programs, is it usually just in the local area around you, or do you travel a lot? So, no, we don't. We do, um, all of our education is national. Okay. And so we do travel. Um, there are groups that do state-specific education. Um, again, there are some, spa- some states that have very specific, have a, a number of um, topics that they have to do specific education on. So some, some groups will focus on those, but we do national education and we do a lot of internet-based education. So would you say it's uh, easy or difficult to uh, maintain a nice work-life balance? Um, I, I think it works well. So my organization, most of our scientific, all of our scientific team now is our remote workers. So oh, wow. we don't travel into an office. We have an office. In fact, we have multiple offices. But when we're not traveling, there's no reason we can't do our jobs from our remote offices and so our my team is in Chicago and Florida and Massachusetts and uh, Georgia Connecticut Maryland all over very flexible that is the dream (laughs) (laughs) it takes a lot of discipline uh, to be a remote worker but if you've made it through graduate school you have that discipline (laughs) what are some of your tips for being a remote worker how do you keep yourself motivated I think that's a great question so I get dressed for work I don't dress in a dress every day for work but I get dressed I in part because I work out in the morning and if I didn't I would just disgust myself (laughs) (laughs) uh, thankfully nobody can smell me over the phone but I do even even if I wasn't to do that I I get up and I go to work I have an office with a door it is not my desk it's not my bed it's not my kitchen table it's an office with a door and that's in part because I have children so should they come home or should I need to take a call in the evening I need to be able to shut the door but I think that that's an important structural component I wouldn't deal without Mm -hmm. Um, and I have a dedicated workspace and I think that that's also very important and I you know I I have enough work that I don't get distracted and sit and watch the television that's again if you make it through graduate school you you probably have that kind of self-discipline right there's also um you know, we're doing a lot more, and I think most 
organizations that are that have so many remote employees are doing this. We're doing a lot more video conferencing hmm. than we used to. So I used to spend my whole day on the phone. Now I spend most of my day on a webcam with uh, with various meetings. So yeah. one, that means you really have to get dressed. It's <laughs> right. from the waist up, <laughs> um, and you know that help, holds you to a different level of accountability. You can't be uh, changing your laundry while you're on the tele while you're on a video conference. Yeah. yeah. Do you do a lot of webinars or just primarily conferences? We do a lot of webinars. Uh, We do a lot of webinars, but we also do a lot of taped web content uh, that, you know, lives for a year. So CME programs can live online for a year and be open for credit for a year. And it's a much more efficient way to educate people than to have a one and done kind of day. I never thought of this part of medical writing. It's kind of cool how it's like science communication and medical mm-hmm. writing combined into one job. It definitely is, and it's more interaction um, than some science writing. Some science writing is really writing manuscripts, um, and some people love that, but I needed more engagement. Um, and so for me, this is a nice fit because I am really speaking to people who are at the top of their field and, you know, I also get, we, we have some programs that look at patient outcomes, so I get a real-world look at what happens in clinical practice and what the impact of certain changes are. Then what don't you like about your job, if there's anything you can share? <laughs> um, what don't I like? I like a lot about my job. <laughs> um, you know, there are, like every job, there are some administrative things that I'm just not very good at. <laughs> um, there's some paperwork that has to be done in order to make sure you check all the correct CME boxes, mm-hmm. and sometimes I'm not great at that stuff. Um, it, for me, it's a benefit, but for some people, it's a bit of a drawback that uh, my personal organization isn't a specialty shop, so we don't do just education in oncology, for example, or just education in diabetes. I like that because I like the diversity. Some people don't. Some people really just want to focus in on a specific area and become really expert in that area. So you had some previous medical writing positions as well. Were those more manuscript heavy? No. So the the uh, organization I worked for before I before the current one is very similar in terms of design. I would say the difference between that organization and this and the organization I'm in at now is that they were really focused in a specific area and work that was supported by a specific group and. Maybe one of the drawbacks of this organization is that funding does ebb and flow with life cycle of drugs. So, for example, I can almost never write a program on the hypertension because all those drugs are generic. Nobody wants to fund that. And so if you choose your entire strategy focused around a single drug or a single class of drugs, when funding stops becoming available for that class of drugs, you're in trouble. And so that's what happens with the organization I worked with before, where most of their work was funded in a single space. Hmm. That drug went generic, and here we are. <laughs> oh, man. So um, would you say that, I mean, how common are those single or, or sort of more narrow-focused firms then, if that's a very real possibility? Most of those firms don't exist anymore. Oh, there you go. <laughs> most of them have folded um, yeah. because... For for a few years, there was a lot of money in specific spaces, um, and these kind of specialty groups did pop up. And they have by and people have by and large either survived in this industry because they were innovative and willing to be flexible, or they didn't. 
like that one. The other thing is education as a whole has really changed. So there was a time where all education was live. And most of it happened at major medical meetings and were these evening symposia, um, 700 people in a room, four speakers, uh, three hours, that kind of thing. Those have started to fall off. They still happen, Mm. but they have started to fall off. And if your entire strategy was built on that kind of education, then you were in trouble. Mm. Um, So the other thing that is a benefit about my organization is that we're very nimble. We have multiple different kinds of platforms so that we can match education with need as well as budgets available. But with all of your expertise in all these different fields, how how much research and reading and keeping up with it do you have to do on a daily basis? So we do a lot. And, you know, when you start a new space, there's a huge learning curve. Um, and a lot of t- you spend a lot of time reading and a lot of time researching. And then you become expert in a space and you don't have to spend as much time there. Um, and in part because you start to develop relationships with the key faculty in those spaces. So, you know, I have biweekly conversations with some of the top researchers in hepatitis C, and I know a lot from those conversations. I don't have to do as much reading there because I have interactions with them. But three years ago when we were very new in the hepatitis space, I had to spend a lot of time reading. So, you know, that changes depending on how quickly you're changing spaces. Um, So you have a master's degree, and... With that, was there anything from that degree, I mean, besides science, that you wish you would have learned more about or a skill you wish you would have developed while in school? So in my current role, I spend more time looking at risks in the healthcare system. Um, And that isn't something we spend a lot of time talking about in my program, but it's not really applicable to that degree per se. But I think knowing a little bit more about how the healthcare system works when I first came out of grad school would have been helpful. Now, I know clinicians who would tell you the same thing, so (laughs) we're all trying to figure out how our healthcare system works. But perhaps some exposure to that world, though, again, I didn't take a straight path here, so nobody does. (laughs) So would you recommend like a clinical rotation for someone looking to go into this? You know, I do think a clinical rotation or some kind of shadowing and understanding what the front lines of healthcare look like would definitely be helpful. It's not absolutely necessary depending on where in this environment you fall. I happen to fall more in systems-based work right now, but it still I think would be helpful. Um, So you described a little bit earlier on about what a new person in your role would do. Is that the same as what the entry-level position would be? Yes, I would call that an entry-level position. I would say um, maybe from there, if you were thinking about what other possibilities are common, um, there's a group of scientific staff in our organization that does a combination of work that is funded and that we're executing and the grant writing or the development of the program to be submitted to for funding considerations. That's a different kind of writing, so that's definitely more prose-based. That's evaluating what the educational needs are and figuring out what the design should look like that, match that, need, that matches that need. And then in some cases, a lot of cases I would say, interfacing directly with the people who support 
that education. So going on those meetings and talking about what you see as the educational need, and then on the back end, going on the meetings that, that present the outcomes from your education and present rationale for future work. That's an important part of that job. Uh, that would probably be it. That's another opportunity. Has your master's held you back? Like, would would you go back and get a PhD? Or for listeners who want this job, is a master's enough? No, it has not held me back. And I, at this point, I'm too old <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um, but it, no, uh, it, do, it doesn't hold me back. And it's not a requirement. Um, mm-hmm. It certainly isn't looked poorly upon. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's it's not a requirement. We look at staff when we're when we're staffing and we're looking for new staff we look at staff with graduate level science degrees but a master's or a phd doesn't matter is is most of the uh, staff masters or uh we have half and half oh wow and then we have some clinical some folks who have clinical training as well okay so are you involved in the hiring process and picking people yeah but not as much for the content role anymore because i do more systems based so some, I do see some of those evaluations and involved in some of those conversations, but I'm not the ultimate hirer. Out of curiosity, for um, people who have PhDs who are trying to get in, does a postdoc matter? No. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it does not. You do not need to do that. <laughs> Just taking a minute to let that weight go. <laughs> Uh, the stigma is when you leave uh, school and you don't become a PI, people look down upon you. Has this happened? So I think whether you're a PI or you're not a PI, at some point in your life, somebody's going to look down on you. And so I think it's a matter of how you want to deal with that. I certainly interface with clinicians, with physicians, and other clinicians who are at the top of their field and may look down upon me. But I interface with other top of their field physicians who see me very much as their advocate and who call me as soon as an RO1 comes up and want to work on that together from whom I know that clinical guidelines are going to be revealed before they're revealed. That trial data is coming up and others don't know. So it's a balance, right? So there's always going to be people who look down on you and I don't think it matters what letters are after your name always going to happen yeah i like that so we should quit school now (laughs) (laughs) no wait i did not say that (laughs) please don't do that (laughs) it's probably not the best thing to say to a continuing education person (laughs) oh my well uh sarah miller thank you so much uh, for your time it was it was great um yeah learned a lot yeah great Yes, thanks for joining us. Uh, if you want to reach out to us, we are on Twitter at 5 to Life Pod, 5 to Life Pod at gmail.com, and 5 to Life Pod.com, all with the letter 5. And you can call us and ask other questions. People call, other people call that a number? 5 is oh, a number. A, no, I always do this. A number 5, <laughs> yes. And you can call us and ask questions anytime. Our number is 336 701 2445. Here's 5 to Life. Cheers. <laughs> I always say letter. <laughs> I thought that was part of your stick. <laughs> you say it like that and he responds like that. I totally thought it was part of your stick. You should leave it in there. Oh, it stayed. <laughs> <laughs>